Hey, why do we stand? I do this every once in a while to remind us of this. In many cultures, you stand for royalty, right? You stand for that which is important, to give honor. And to the degree that I speak the truth this morning, it'll be the word of God. But we know, we know this fact, that what we're about to hear as I read in the next minute or so is indeed God's word given to us by the Spirit. Hear God's word, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report of him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And turn over to John chapter 16. We're going to read verses 7 through 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus speaking. He's talking to his disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the rule of the world, ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God, may it stand forever. You may be seated though. All right, so if I usually, if I read two passages like this, it means we are um, not doing our normal thing, which would be working through one singular passage, which is called an exegetic or an expositional sermon. This morning is unabashedly uh, a topical sermon in which we're going to be looking at essentially this question, the relationship of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. And therefore, we have to look at a couple different texts. That means I'm not going to look, deal with everything in these texts. For example, I'm not going to really deal with verses 8 through 12 or 8 through 11 of John chapter 16. But I am going to be focusing entirely this morning on the relationship of Jesus and the Spirit. But just for some reminder, I want to remind you what we're doing in this series. I am trying to clarify and to bring understanding to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There has been a lot of misunderstanding over the years about the Holy Spirit to the, our great 
um, neglect. John Stott tells this funny story of a Chinese inquirer of the Christian faith. She, she read the story of Jesus' baptism, and, and there you see a classic example of the Trinity at work, that the fact that our, uh, we have one God who has, is, is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these is God, and, um, but they make up one, one God. God the Father, she said. She sees God the Father there at Jesus' baptism. God the Father speaks. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. She says, I, I understand that. And then she's like, I see God the Son. There's Jesus. He's the one being baptized there. Uh, the Jesus is Nazareth. And then she says, but who is this holy bird? The holy bird. She thought the Holy Spirit was the bird that descended upon Jesus. And there is a lot of awkwardness. There's also the confusion. There's like the little boy, the dad who saw, um, or the dad who saw his little boy who was out back dunking his teddy bear in a bird bath up and down. You see, the boy had attended a baptism the previous day and was reenacting the whole baptism scene with his teddy bear. And his father drew near his son and doing performing this kind of pseudo baptism of the bear. And he heard him say, "I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and in the name of the only Ghost, the only Ghost, the only Ghost that is out there is who we baptize you in." See, there's there's confusion about even the name of the Holy Spirit. Is it a ghost? Is he the dove? Is he a spirit? Other people, because of this confusion, simply just rather would just avoid the subject of the Holy Spirit. It's just easier. It just causes problems in the church. You know, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is treated like the, you know, the, the crazy cousin of the Trinity. Like we, I, he's God, but we just don't like to talk about him. We just like to have him over there. We have kind of pneumophobia. That kind of seems to be our issue, particularly in the church maybe that runs in our particular stream of the theological and Christian world. But the whole theme of this series is this. I don't simply want you to understand the Holy Spirit, his person, his work, but I want you to come see that the Holy Spirit is a gift to you. A gift to you. And I want you to be in awe of that gift. Today I want you to see that while many of us have heard of what's called the gift of the Spirit, and when we think in terms of the gift of the Spirit, we think in terms as the Spirit being gifted to us by Jesus. And that certainly happens, and we'll look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit later on in the series. But today I want to show you how Jesus is actually a gift to us that comes courtesy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us the Spirit, but the Spirit has given us Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at the relationship between the two members of the Trinity we know as God the Son, or Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a gift of the Spirit to us for three reasons we see in these two texts. Three reasons we're going to look at this morning to kind of jump through and look at the relationship between Jesus and the Spirit. This is, like I began at the beginning of the series, this is a more didactic less preachy, more teachy, and we're going to be looking at, I think, something like 20 different passages this morning, so hang on to your seats, follow the screen, because it's going to be coming rapid fire. The first aspect of the relationship between Jesus and the Spirit is this, is that the, the Spirit is the supervisor or the director of Jesus. Now, that might sound odd to you, but let me ask you this question. Why would Jesus who is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully man. What is the point of Jesus having the Spirit? If he is God, why does he need the Spirit in his life? What does the Spirit add to the deity of Jesus? 
Is it just a show at Jesus' baptism that the Holy Spirit comes upon him? Why does it matter that Jesus comes with the power of the Holy Spirit? Let me ask it another question. Let me ask it this way. Isn't it seem unfair that Jesus, who lives a sinless life of obedience, isn't it seem unfair that Peter then holds him up as a model for you and I to say, live like Jesus? And we go, what's, what's the, what's the phrase? Haven't you thought about this, kids? You read the stories about Jesus, and he does everything perfectly, and you go, yeah, but he was God. That's not fair to put that on me. I mean, of course he was, could be perfect. Of course these things weren't hard for him. He is God. Or in Philippians 2, it says, have an attitude like Jesus. And you go, yeah, but Jesus always had a good attitude because he was God. That doesn't seem fair. But the answer to these questions is this. Though Jesus was God... But what Philippians 2 tells us is that Jesus did not take advantage of the power of his deity while he was engaging in his earthly ministry so that he could experience what you and I experience. Therefore, you see, Jesus was not simply fully God, he was fully man. And therefore, in his humanness, he needed the power and the movement and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He lived, he was God, but he set aside all the power and the graces and the glories of his deity while he says he was veiled. He pushed them aside, set them aside while he was on earth and lived as a man with all of its weaknesses. He lived all his life by the power, therefore, provided for him in his humanity. And what is it God the Father provided for Jesus so that Jesus in his humanity could live a substitutionary perfect life of righteousness for you and I? He gave him two things. The Word, the Old Testament, and the Spirit. Jesus needed the Spirit because he lives as one of us, as a man. A human life of absolute obedience provided by the strength given to him by the Spirit. All the wisdom Jesus had, all the power Jesus had, all the obedience Jesus had, it came through his reliance. That's why we talked about in our focus this morning in worship was on our reliance upon God is that Jesus relied on the Spirit. Jesus lives every aspect of his life under the direction and leading of the Spirit. Now, because this is one of those things that may be a new concept for you, I want to I drive this home biblically. And with the Holy Spirit, we have to kind of jump all over the place because the Holy Spirit is like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You're like, oh, he's, there he is. Oh, there he is. He's right there. And he kind of kind of peers out every, every once in a while. So let me just run through a number of passages and show you the connection here and how the Spirit is expected and did indeed lead and empower Jesus throughout his life. For, for example, we are told in the Old Testament that Messiah, who would be coming, would live by the Spirit. In fact, that's the very passage we read today. In Luke chapter 4, the passage that Jesus reads in the temple there, in the synagogue, excuse me, is he is quoting and reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. And here's what Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And Jesus says, in your reading, in this moment right now in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, after reading Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, he then sets it down and he says, 
that has been fulfilled in your midst. Therefore, Jesus is saying is, I am the one upon whom the spirit of the Lord is upon. I am the one who has come to bring good news. You know the power by which Jesus brought good news? You know why Jesus is able to heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty and open the prison and declare the year of the Lord's favor? All that happens because of the spirit of God working in Jesus and through Jesus. Just to drive this home some more, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, it says that this is how the Messiah will be. He will be one who's filled with the Spirit. Here's what it says. There should come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So he's saying the Messiah is going to be a son of, of David, a son of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. How did Jesus know the word so well? It was both from studying and because the Holy Spirit gave him wisdom and knowledge. We also see that Jesus Christ, he was begotten by the Spirit. How did Jesus come into being as a fully God and fully man? Luke chapter 1 verse 35, the angel shows up to Mary and says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the, Holy, of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God, because he is brought forth by the power of the Spirit. Jesus Christ was anointed and fitted for service by the Spirit. Peter actually says this and describes Jesus' ministry this way in Acts chapter 10 verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing. How does Jesus do miracles? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus followed the Spirit and carried out whatever the Spirit told him to do. And the very text we have today, in verse 14 of Luke 4, it says this, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Well, that same chapter, right after Jesus has been baptized by the Spirit in Luke chapter 3, it says this in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit directed the very places Jesus went. He directed what he taught. He directed what he did. Jesus, his miracles came about by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what it tells us in Matthew 12, 28. But it, for it, Jesus says, For if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And lastly, it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is risen from the dead. Romans 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How? Through his Spirit. Do you see the relationship? Every step, every aspect of Jesus' life, it is a remarkable thing that the second person of the Trinity would actually submit himself, would be directed and come under the supervision of the third member of the Trinity. But this is how Jesus lived his life, every single bit of it. Now, two applications. Two applications. One is very theologically crunchy, and so we'll get to that one first while your brain is still a little bit fresh. Seeing this helps clarify some texts of scripture about Jesus that otherwise would appear really confusing and perhaps even confusing concerning Jesus' nature. Now follow along with me. Put your thinking caps on. Here we go. Luke chapter 2 verse 40, it says this. And it says, in the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, And the favor of God was upon him. Then in verse 52 of Luke chapter 2, it says this. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, 
how can Jesus, if our conception of Jesus is that he is merely a deity who is, our, who is perfect in every possible way, and we don't have in mind his humanity, how can he grow up in wisdom and in knowledge? You think he knows everything. How can he increase in knowledge? He's God. But what it's saying here is that it is in his humanity, Jesus actually grew in his knowledge. You know what's actually between Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.52? is the account of Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem with his parents when he's eight years old, and he sits, and he actually teaches all the teachers of the law what the Old Testament means. Now, how did he get that? Is it simply because, well, it was eight-year-old God. Eight-year-old, like, he's a genie, and so he just goes, he knows everything. Is that how? No, it was actually eight-year-olds. Jesus studied so hard, and the power of the Holy Spirit was upon his life so that he knew the scriptures profoundly, so much so that he could teach adults. Well, that is an amazing thing. Jesus is, even as a young man, is a true Psalm 1 man who is rooted and lives his life in the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Another verse that would help us make sense if we think in terms of Jesus' reliance upon the Spirit. Mark chapter 13, verse 32 but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Talking about when, when the second coming is going to happen. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, so in fact, a lot of people have looked at this text and actually said that Jesus, the Son of God, is not divine. Because if he was divine, he would actually know when he's coming back. But this, much, this makes much more sense if we think in terms of Jesus making this statement out of the sense of his humanity, that he had laid aside the perfect, sovereign, omniscient knowledge of his deity during his time on earth, and so you, that's how you account for Jesus' lack of knowledge. In his humanity, there's a veiling of the knowledge that he has in his divine nature, so there is a limitation of what he can comprehend except by the Spirit. He was willing to take on these limitations how much did Jesus know? We are not told. But we do know that he lived his life by faith. He sought wisdom by praying to the Father, by crying out for the Spirit's help. He, how did he pick his disciples? He went and prayed for a couple of days and got alone by himself to hear from the Father and to dwell with the Spirit. One last one. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says this. Although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, isn't that confusing? How is it that Jesus who is divine and therefore perfect, how does, what does it look like for him to learn obedience and to become, be made perfect? It cannot mean that he learned how to stop disobeying, that early on in his life he was disobedient to God, and that later on he was more obedient. No, it's very clear in the scriptures, for example, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus was perfectly righteous, that even if he, when he was tempted, he was tempted without sin, so he does not have a mind that he moved, Hebrews 5 doesn't have a mind that he moved from disobedience to obedience. It means he learned to obey the increasingly difficult demands that God the Father put before him. In other words, Jesus' life, his whole life, is an increase of more and more difficult commands by the Father to Jesus. And the, the crescendo of this is thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about when we looked at that a couple months back. Think about the anguish that Jesus is going through. And he's actually coming to the Father and he's questioning the Father three times. He asks, take this cup from me. Now, if you think of Jesus only in terms of his divine nature, he is God 
And you think, why is he upset about this? He, God shouldn't get upset. He knows that everything is going to come out. God shouldn't have to struggle or strain to even get through some sort of temptation or some difficult season. But if you think of him in terms of his humanity, you begin to see that he had greater and greater feats of obedience that were more and more difficult in the crescendo of which, of which was to be rejected by the Father, to go to a cross and to hang there for us. He has been made perfect. That doesn't mean he was imperfect before, but he was perfect in his nature and he grew into the full maturity in that he showed in his obedience that there was nothing God the Father couldn't ask of him and God the Son wouldn't say, absolutely, I will do your will. Not my will be, but your will be done. Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life. Now, okay, if, you're, if your head is now in the clouds, if you peaced out and went to a happy place with lapping oceans there for a few minutes, re-engage with me because I want to connect in this, the importance of this to the gospel for you. One of the things that should become pretty clear for you here around King's Chapel is this, is the beauty of this truth is that you are not saved by your righteousness at all. You don't bring one piece of righteousness to the table, but your righteousness is entirely Jesus giving you his righteousness and putting it on your records. Now, how did Jesus win that righteous record for you? By the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the righteousness of Christ that clothes you, that makes you beautiful and acceptable in the sight of God, comes courtesy to you of the Holy Spirit working in the life of Jesus. One final application to this. I might add this. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus need the Spirit? Yes. And therefore, if the divine son of God, yes, who set aside the, the playing outs and the participating with his divine uh, glories while he was on earth. But if Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit, needed to live in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, how much more you and me? That if Jesus needed to get time alone to dwell with the Spirit, to hear from the Spirit, to be empowered by the Father, by the Spirit, as he got in the Word, how much more you and I are in desperate need for the Spirit. So what about you? Listen, if you're at a place of your life of spiritual dryness or you have challenging things uh, in relationships, a difficult ask that God has put before you in which you go, I don't know if I can do what God has asked of me here. Here's what you need to praise. You need to plead for the Spirit's help. Because that's who Jesus went to, asking for help, pleading for wisdom, pleading for the power of mission. If Jesus did it, don't you think you ought to as well? Second way, the relationship between the Spirit and Jesus, the way Jesus is a gift of the Holy Spirit to us is this, is the Spirit is the floodlight upon Jesus. The Spirit is the supervisor or the director of Jesus, but the Spirit is also the floodlight upon Jesus. In John chapter 16, which is what we read at the beginning this morning, in verses 13 and 14, it says this, But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. In verse 14. And he will glorify me. Jesus is speaking. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has this central mission. To point to Jesus. To direct us to Jesus. To 
point correctly and directly all the time into your heart and to your eyes, Jesus. To make Jesus central, to ensure that Jesus is seen. That is his role. John 15, verse 26, it reiterates this. But when the helpers come, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about himself? No, about me. The Spirit testifies not about himself, but about Jesus. You see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit can be illustrated like this. This is how J.I. Packer illustrates it in his book, Keeping in Step with, Kept in Step with the Holy Spirit. He says that Jesus, the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight upon Jesus. He says it's like when you're coming along around a dark road and you come across a, maybe a beautiful church and you, it's struck, you see the struck by the light upon it. You can see it, all its beautiful colors and arrays and shapes there and you see it there before you in the, out of the darkness. You aren't thinking, what a lovely floodlight. What are you thinking? What a lovely building. And so that is what, that's what the Spirit's role is. The Spirit is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight. In fact, floodlights you're not even supposed to see. They're hidden off in a corner. Which is why we can often be so confused about the Spirit and why he kind of just pops up at various times because his whole role is to remain hidden. In fact, one theologian put it this way, that the Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. But the Spirit is always saying, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Look at his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, have life in Jesus. The Spirit, we might say, is the great matchmaker between us and Jesus. That is his role. He is the spiritual match.com, the celestial marriage broker who connects God's people with the groom, Jesus. And what is the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to shine the light on Jesus? It's through a book. And the Holy Spirit's been rather successful with this book. I mean, it's the greatest, greatest selling book in all of human history. It says in verse 13 of John chapter 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. John 14, 25, and 26, these things I have spoken to you so that while I'm still with you, but the help of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. He's speaking to the apostles who will write your New Testament. Therefore, what he is saying is this, is the Holy Spirit will help you remember the good news of Jesus Christ so that you can then proclaim it to all the world. The Spirit speaks through the word, through the scriptures. And through that word, what he always centrally shows us is not himself, but Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus says. Luke chapter 24, when he's on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, all the scriptures, the law and the prophets are about who? The spirit? No, they're about me, he says, about Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he preaches only Christ crucified, for it is the power of God for salvation. The focus of Paul's teaching is the person and work of Jesus. But where did God, where did Paul get his gospel message? says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13. These things, after giving the gospel, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So, let me point this to the application. Why do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Why do you know Jesus? Because of the floodlight of the Holy Spirit who is shown brightly on Jesus so that you may see him, so that you may know him, so you can see who he is. You see, the Spirit doesn't just show us who Jesus is, but then in the Word, he tells us who Jesus is. The Spirit is like a little kid at elementary school. Every day is show and tell for the Holy Spirit. I show Jesus and I tell you about Jesus. That's his role. That's what he wants to do. And so the spirit is never offended. This is why the, the, the theme, the symbolic theme of the church is the cross, not a dove. Because the center of the Christian message is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is not offended by that. In fact, he's glorified by it. Now, I think that is a really simple point. That's an easy illustration, right? The spirit is a floodlight on Jesus. But there's an, there's an application here. And I'm asking a lot of you this morning. I understand but there's an application here that is apologetic in nature to defend and ensure us of a, a, a teaching that could uh, come make its way into your heart and into the church that is wrong. There's a teaching about the centrality of Jesus in the Spirit's mission. This teaching, it actually contradicts a false teaching that is more and more coming into the church, which is called inclusivism. And here's what inclusivism teaches. Inclusivism teaches that because God is sovereign and because the Spirit blows where he wishes, then that could mean that the Spirit could move in people and have them saved through the teachings of other religions. In other words, it's a backdoor way towards religious pluralism. To say that because the Spirit kind of goes wherever he wants to, couldn't he therefore then save people through other religions without them putting their faith and trust in Jesus? The most famous inclusivist ever is a man named, you've heard of him, C.S. Lewis. And here's what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so, so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of the religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background, though he, still, he might still say he believed, the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. What Lewis is arguing here is that people from other religions, though they do not profess Christ, though they not, haven't put their faith in Christ, may still be saved because of the secret influence of the Holy Spirit. But I'm counteracting that teaching with this. This misunderstands the whole mission of the Spirit. The whole point of the mission of the Holy Spirit is to bring you to faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus. In other words, to say that the Spirit would actually save someone with a message that is devoid of Jesus is antithetical to the whole person and work of the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit's work can never be separated from the work to reveal and glorify and bring people to faith and trust in Jesus. And therefore, we cannot play this back door in order to appease the religions of the world and the modern religious pluralists. The Spirit does not work indiscriminately without having in view Jesus Christ. And praise be to God that us who did not deserve it, who did nothing, who were not seeking, who were not looking for Jesus, the Holy Spirit illumined our hearts to see Jesus. It was his work. One last point, and here's something amazing. The Spirit doesn't just show us Jesus. He doesn't just tell us about Jesus. But the Spirit is Jesus in us. 
You see, the same spirit that empowered Jesus to live a sinless life, the same spirit that empowered Jesus to do miracles, that empowered Jesus to obedience, even unto death, that same spirit is promised to us by Jesus to be sent to live inside of us. So the last point is this. I just want you simply to see the spirit is the presence of Jesus. The spirit is the one who directs Jesus in his ministry, the Spirit is then the one who directs our eyes to see Jesus, and then the Spirit is the one who brings the very presence of Jesus to us. John 16, verse 7, it says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So I ask you this question, how can it be better to not have Jesus with us? How can it be better? The disciples are very distressed because it seems like the last whole month of Jesus' ministry, he's constantly looking at them and he's going, hey guys, I'm going away. And they go, no, you're not. And then every once in a while he goes, hey guys, I'm going away. And they go, that's really distressing. Don't go away. And Jesus goes, hey, but it's better for you if I go away. How can that be? How can it be better for you to go away? It's this truth. The only thing better than Christ with you, what can be better than Christ with you? Christ in you. Kids, prepositions matter. Christ Jesus with you, or Christ Jesus in you, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is nothing less than the presence of Christ in us. Sinclair Ferguson in his book on the Holy Spirit says it this way, having the Spirit means nothing less than having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, and resurrected, and reigning Christ living at the center of our lives. So that we are united to Christ as Christ is united to the Father, which is why Jesus says in John 14, 20, at the end of all is talking about the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son and the sending of the Holy Spirit. He says on the day in which he sends us the Holy Spirit, that in that day, you will know that Jesus is in union with the Father and that Jesus is in union with us and us with Jesus. Let me ask you this. Would you dare think of yourself this way? If that actually penetrated your existential understanding when you get up every morning, that the very power of the living God, that Jesus himself isn't just like walking with you as your buddy, but he's actually living inside of you, wouldn't that radically transform how you view your life? As kids, you ask the question, maybe thought of this as kids, wouldn't it, wouldn't it, be, it would be so much easier for me to obey if Jesus was just in the room with me. Like, I'd never yell at my parents if Jesus was in the room with me. I mean, that would be embarrassing to yell at my parents in front of Jesus. I wouldn't behave like that. Kids, huh? Yes? Remember, you're thinking, man, man, this season of my life is awful. And if Jesus was just here in the room with me, weeping with me, crying with me, comforting me, then, then maybe I'd be okay. Jesus says, I am. Matthew 28, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will go with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You think, man, I've got this neighbor. This guy's a real hardhead. He's really intimidating. He's way better looking than me. He's more successful than me. He's really smart. And I have to share the gospel with him. I don't have the power to do that. If only Jesus was here with me to do the job for me. Oh, wait. And I will be with you wherever you go. Go and make disciples. You think of this? This is crazy. We, here, it's, if it actually hits our ears wrong that Jesus lives inside of us. We think that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like we shouldn't be allowed to have that kind of intimate relationship between us and God. Like, we think like the prodigal son on the way home. God, if you just kind of let us reside in your vicinity, then we're good. That's all I need. 
But gee, what, is she, what does God do? He says, no, 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 I will embrace you as a child. I'll be in intimate union with you. I'll put my ring on you. I'll put my robe on you. I will carry you into the house. The intimate union we have with him. This is, I mean, Solomon understood this. Do you know that? Solomon says this. In the building, he builds the magnificent temple. And then at the dedication of the temple, he prays this in 2 Chronicles 6, 18. As great as Solomon is, as high a view as he had of himself, here's what he thought. He said, but will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, God. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon is saying, how can it be that you would even come and live in our midst? Solomon's just, he's not even talking about in you. He's talking about, I can't even believe that God would come and be with us. He would reside in a house. You know what the house? Like, it's all gold, that temple. He does not even consider God coming and living inside of us. It's just with us. And yet in the New Testament, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And let me tell you, you want to meet some screwed up people. Go read about the church in Corinth. And to these, this whacked out group of people, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Solomon was right. No temple is grand enough to hold the very presence of God except the temple that God would choose for himself. That in and of itself, we would say, that temple's not worthy of God. Solomon's looking at this thing that's probably worth billions and billions of dollars of a building, and he's saying, this is not worthy of your presence, God. Yeah, and neither are you and I. We are not worthy, and yet... This is the beauty, and this is why it's not what we, who we are, but it's our love, and we are amazing. You are acceptable, and you are wonderful in God's sight, not because of what the world says about you and what you say about you, but because of what God has declared about you. When the creator declares something, then it actually is the truth. And he's declared you so worthy and so acceptable and so beautiful and so loving in his sight that he would say, I will dwell with you. This ought to blow your mind. One last question, and we're going to be done. Now, what would it look like for the Holy Spirit to fall upon us? Like physically, what would it look like? When God shows up in the Old Testament, this is called a teaser, people. When, when God shows up in the Old Testament, what does it look like? When he falls on the tabernacle in the desert and then on the temple, what does it look like? Fire. Next week, we'll look at Pentecost. (laughs) Come back. Let's pray. Man, what a gift. What a gift, Lord, that you, the, the very example of Jesus, that you would live in reliance upon the Spirit. Well, we think way too much of ourselves so often and think that we can do it on our own strength. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would look to the example of Jesus and say, I cannot, I have to have the Spirit. Spirit, fall fresh on me. Spirit, come reside. We're desperate for you, Spirit, to do the things you've called us to do. And yet, Lord, we think too little of ourselves. That we would think, you can't come live in us. You can't come dwell in us. Look at us. We're so messed up. And yet, in your glory and in your grace, you do. And you declare us worthy. You declare us beautiful. And you come and send us your spirit. And you make us your very home, your tabernacle, your temple in this world. Lord, I pray that these truths, that we would chew on them this this week. 
And that, Lord, where I haven't connected the dots to apply them to the specific areas of our life, that, Lord, your spirit would help us to think through these things, to connect the dots to the areas where we need to embrace this beautiful reality that you have come, Jesus, your presence, has come to live with us. And that that would give us great joy. Joy, give us joy, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.